0: Jesus Hello, everybody. Hello. Welcome to our podcast. Welcome. Okay, we're starting now.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. We got to leave that in now. Are you a good witch or a bad bitch, bad, bitch, bad bitch? I've been a rebel all my life. We will not remain hidden figures. We have names. Oh. To your, shake your shoulders, shake your hips, lady confess I wanna
0: be <laughs> I didn't kid you, did I? Well now you know. <laughs> Hello and welcome to another episode of Good Witches, Bad Bitches. I'm Deanna. I'm Hannah. And we are your co-hosts on this non-academic journey through women from all time periods that we just want to talk about and you want to hear about.
1: Damn straight. Yeah. I mean, that that about covers it. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes we shoot the shit, and that's okay. If you're not here for that, then get out. I love how much qualifying we feel like we have to do now. (laughs) You know what? I'm going to say it for all of those people here now in the first two minutes of our podcast so that if you feel like you need to leave a review about how you Hannah, don't like don't talk us talking, this. then, you know, <laughs> bye. We, are, we can cut that. But that's why I'm doing it.
0: We are two educated women who are shocked <laughs> by how poorly educated we were about many women throughout history. I like that.
1: I like that. Yes. We're teaching ourselves and we're teaching you in the process. We are basically
0: giving you a primer about cool women. And if you want to go find a scholarly article about that woman, Do it to your heart's content. We're really happy to have introduced you to someone.
1: Love it. There you go. Yes. Now, um, you were just telling me about Quentin Tarantino's editor, longtime editor. Yeah, Sally Mankey. Sally Mankey. Um, Because I am woefully, speaking
0: of education, I'm woefully uneducated in my viewing of Quentin Tarantino's films. I saw Django Unchained when it came out. I think I was in high school. Maybe early college?
1: College. Yeah. Yeah. Ben and
0: I were together. Okay. When it came out. There you go. That's good. Um, I think. But that was my first movie I'd seen of his. And since I hadn't seen any until uh, a few weeks ago, I watched Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I know I'm behind. It was after the Oscars and everything. So don't at me for that. (laughs) But no one cares. It's fine. In fairness, you watched it twice. I did watch it twice. It was, And it's stuck in my brain for the ensuing weeks. And I keep listening to the soundtrack. I think it was a really, really awesome film um, for many reasons. Damn. But uh, I was talking to Alex about it because Alex is a big Tarantino fan. And we were listening to a podcast about Tarantino and his process. And I learned that he had a female editor from Jump of when he started making movies. And they had this really incredibly close relationship and then she died tragically very she was 56 and Mm. um he was totally lost artistically for a little while and had to figure out how to make films without her or so it's my impression right um so there's this guardian piece that uh i wanted to just touch on real quick from 2010 so lots of people have had plenty of opportunity to read it um it's by ben walters and it's called Sally Mankey, the quiet heroine of the Quentin Tarantino success story. Mm. So um, she died in September 2010, age 56, after going hiking. Uh, it was like 115 degrees or some shit on that day. Oh, And so they think her death was related to the heat. But oh. she just didn't come home from the hike. And her family sent police to look and they found her body. Oh, God,
1: that's so tragic.
0: Yeah. Um, with a with her dog, but her dog was alive and just waiting next to the body, which I was like, oh my
1: god. That is so sad.
0: Yeah. Um, I was not
1: expecting that kind of a tragedy. Yeah. My god. So
0: her sad death brings to a close the longstanding collaboration with Quentin Tarantino. Mankey was the only editor with whom the writer-director had ever worked at the time. And it yielded some of the most exhilarating and accomplished films of the past 20 years. He once described her as hands down my number one collaborator, noting in an interview for the Grindhouse DVD that, quote, I write by myself, but when it comes to the editing, I write with Sally. It's the true epitome, I guess, of a collaboration because I don't remember what was her idea, what was my idea. We're just right there together. (laughs) Um, She was hiking, apparently, when the collaboration began, too. She was standing in a phone booth on a remote com- Canadian mountainside, the 90s, uh, when she <laughs> learned that Tarantino wanted her to edit Reservoir Dogs. Although he was an untried filmmaker, Mankey, whose two previous credits included Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, had loved his script. <laughs> so she, advoc- she had the, the career at the time and right. it was, it was well known in her circles. Mm-hmm. And she was like, I really want to work with you. I love this script. I love this script. And he was like, Awesome. Uh, and, uh, yeah, she, oh, here you go. Thought of Martin Scorsese and Thelma Schoonmaker. Schoonmaker? Sh- Schoonmaker. Schoonmaker. I think. Anyway. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, We were talking about that too. Yes. Um, Tarantino later said, and this is kind of interesting to me, especially in the context of our podcast, um, that he expected a female editor to be, quote, more nurturing to the movie and to me. They wouldn't be trying to win their way just to win their way. They wouldn't be trying to shove their agenda or win their battles with me. They would be nurturing me through this process because, mm-hmm. you know, men need a mom. But of course. But still it's in it, he was like, I don't want a battle of male egos. I want a collaborator. Right. So I want a
1: woman. Yeah. Which is interesting. I mean, that was a lot of why we sought out female crew for Carmilla was just because like male ego can actually be a huge problem on set Mm -hmm. and especially so many men because they think that they're the only ones in competition for certain roles and for certain things Mm -hmm. they tend to bring that out in full force when they are working with people and women just don't like we've never been trained to think that way so you know it's not so much a gender thing as it is a societal thing right but I see where that comes from. Right. Uh, Mankey, too, felt
0: this dimension of the working relationship. Quote, I think editors play a big role with directors in giving them support, making them feel like they can look at something that may have trouble or problems and be comfortable enough so they can approach those problems. She once described editors to The Observer as the quiet heroes of movies, noting that, quote, we have a very private relationship with our directors, most often conducted in dark rooms. It could be so intense, she said in The Cutting Edge, that I see Tarantino more than my husband. <laughs> he noted in turn, in mock dudgeon style, that, quote, sometimes I get annoyed with her for not reading my mind 100%. It's not good enough that she reads it 80% of the time.
1: Oh my God. Which
0: is kind of cute. <laughs> or it's...
1: Yeah, yeah. It, because I mean, I like... think
0: he's me- he meant it, and obviously, like, a, I. D- It's unreasonable of me to expect her to read my mind 100% of the time. But because she was so good at it most of the time, I would get frustrated when
1: she didn't. Yeah. Um, You have that shorthand and then you're taken out of that ability to. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: Uh, Many aspects of the style Menke developed with Tarantino were already evident in Reservoir Dogs from long dialogue heavy takes shot with a restless camera to bursts of immersive violence. Another signature was the brilliant use of obscure music over material tellingly heightened through devices such as slow motion. Intriguingly, Menke revealed that, quote, I don't cut to music. I just make the scene work emotionally and dramatically, and then Quentin will come in and lay the track over it, and we'll tweak it to the beats. The opening sequence of the film remains a masterclass in technique. I guess Reservoir Dogs? Yeah. Yeah. Their next project, Pulp Fiction, was altogether more ambitious, but developed similar motifs. Uh, The scene in which Vincent Vega and Mia Wallace dance was shot to live playback of Chuck Berry's You Can Never Tell or You Uh Never Can Tell and plays out in sensuous, continuous takes rather than the fast cutting that characterizes the rest of their date. Hmm. A sequence that played out almost in real time until Mankey helped Tarantino boil it down. Uh, Quote, most editing is painstaking, but this was an exciting scene to edit because it had momentum of its own and an obvious magic. Uh, Then they talk about Jackie Brown and Kill Bill. And Death Proof. Um, The last film that she worked on was uh, *Inglorious Bastards. Mm. Um, By the time of that movie, the implicit trust between her and Tarantino was such that, quote, he gives me the dailies and I put them together and there's little interference. Wow. Yeah. Um, His confidence in her was amply rewarded. It's worth noting that the nurturing aspect of Menke and Tarantino's relationship went both ways. Editing on his films would take place not at studio suites, but in small rented private houses, a more personal setup than the norm, but perhaps a more isolated one. He got into the habit of asking cast and crew members to slip greetings into their work when the opportunity arose to stop her from feeling lonesome. Aww. Uh, every yeah. botched take became an opportunity for a goofy, hi Sally.
1: Oh, that's really There's sweet. Video compilations, of that you can find on video compilations on YouTube. Okay.
0: So she was that's like, really sweet. clearly beloved. Oh. and uh, I mean, obviously I, the the movies I've seen are not ones that she's worked on right
1: gosh so. that's true and th- those are the only ones i've seen because i haven't seen hateful eight was it hatefully crazy hatefully hateful eight. Eight. um i haven't seen that one and i haven't seen once upon a time in hollywood but i've seen pulp fiction and kill bill and death proof and inglorious bastards mm-hmm. so all mm-hmm. the films of tarantino's that i've seen are hers mm-hmm. that's so interesting but I just thought that I thought Man. that was fascinating. Um, well, I love that.
0: And since you are talking about someone who is in the entertainment industry as well, this week, yes, I am. Following up to May West from last week. Yeah. Uh, yeah.
1: Super interesting that we both chose people in that realm, and also and we're contemporaries. And we're contemporaries. I don't know who
0: you're talking about, but that's what you tell me. Yes,
1: and also um, the 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 editor. Thing ties into my person a little bit too. Hey. Um, yeah, yeah. So yeah. look at us go.
0: I know. Even in Mercury Retrograde. Wade. well Wade. <laughs> We're on the same level. We just can't talk very no. well.
1: Are you a good witch
0: or a bad bitch?
1: Let us know by becoming a patron on, on our, our Patreon. Patreon. <laughs>
0: oh no! Patreon is a service that helps content creators like ourselves keep the ship going and make sure that we're able to cover all the costs that uh, come along with doing our podcast. And the
1: more patrons we get, hopefully, the more content we can start creating exclusively oh, yeah. for patrons. Yes. So if you are interested in something like that, please become a patron. So that we can start creating that content for you.
0: Also, when you become a patron, you will get a shout out on our podcast and we will thank you personally on air. How exciting is that?
1: Very exciting. Yeah, yeah. You can find us at patreon.com slash GWBB podcast. So who are you going to tell me about this week? So a couple of years ago, God, I can't believe it's been a couple of years. in, in December 2018, I think it was. I did um, Ida Lupino. Yes, you did. And I chose her because I had gone and seen one of her films prior to researching her. And so just like with that one, I saw a film, like I think last month that inspired me to look into the director of this of this film. And figure out, you know, who who put it on. And I was shocked by the history behind her. I had no idea. But I went and saw Merrily We Go to Hell, which is a pre-Hays Code, you know, black and white film. Uh-huh. Directed by Dorothy Arzner. Have you ever heard this name before? I have not. You're in for a treat. Um, because she is, she, she basically made... Ida Lupino's job possible really yes which I did not know about Ida at the time right none Dorothy doesn't isn't mentioned at all in any of the research I did about Ida and she shouldn't be they weren't necessarily contemporaries like they were one after the other but um before I dive in a little bit I just want to say my sources are um an Atlas Obscura article by Ella Morton Um, Judith Main is a historian uh, on Dorothy Arzner, and she did, she wrote a book called Directed by Dorothy that a lot of different articles quoted, Mm. um, but she also did a great, she had a great article from filmquarterly.org, wikipedia, tiff.net, Toronto International Film Festival. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They did a great article on her, um, Women Film Pioneers Project, which is WFPP.Columbia.edu. Okay. Whew, and uh, Smithsonian Mag. So I loved this little intro from the Atlas Obscura article. She writes, Ella writes, Type the name Dorothy Arzner into Netflix's search bar, and you'll get zero results. It's an odd outcome, considering Arzner a prolific Golden Age film director... Has 16 credited feature films, among the most of any woman in Hollywood ever. And that is not including the ones she received no credit for. Uh, okay. She gave Katherine Hepburn one of her first starring roles. Uh huh. She navigated the transition from silent films to talkies with Panache, inventing the boom microphone in the process. What? She was profiled by many newspapers over the course of her career for the distinction of being the only film director in Hollywood. And she was the first and only female member of the DGA until she left Hollywood, paving the way for its second female member, Ida Lupino. Lupino. Mm -hmm. And yet, she is largely unknown today. So, Dorothy Arzner was born in 1897. She grew up in Los Angeles where her father owned a restaurant. And a lot, of, a lot of articles talked about how her dad's restaurant was the catalyst for her film career, but it really wasn't. They, they had a lot of silent film stars and directors who came in and out. Like They saw a lot of Mary Pickford. They saw a lot of Douglas Fairbanks, Max Sennett. Um, but what she really wanted to do at first was be a doctor. She, sure. yeah She enrolled in the University of Southern California, for medicine. Wow. Um,
0: Which but, was also an odd time for a woman to be studying medicine. Yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> and it was kind of the right time for her, I think, because World War One happened. And she was able to get a taste of it very quickly, like what yeah, being a doctor, um, yeah. what being in medicine would be like um because she joined that you see yeah she joined the local southern california ambulance unit and then she spent a summer working in the office of a respected surgeon and i think at the time they just saw a lot more um injury and sickness and all of that yeah i couldn't do that no um and it was at that point that she decided she did not want a career in medicine. Understandable. Yeah. She said, I wanted to be like Jesus, <laughs> heal the sick and raise the dead instantly without surgery, pills, etc." cetera. Aha. Uh-huh. So that took me into the motion picture industry. Because movie you magic. can do movie magic. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so after World War I, the film industry was in need of workers. Because so many of them went overseas. Right. And she said in a 1974 interview for Cinema Magazine that, quote, it was possible for even inexperienced people to have an opportunity if they showed any sign of ability or knowledge. Makes sense as well. Yeah. So she told the Sunday Star in 1929 that she had a friend who thought she would be well-suited to the industry. And that friend drove her to the Paramount studio and just, like, let her out of the car and said, go get a job. And so she walked into the main office and was like, "Okay, I'm here. How do I get a job? How do I get a job in the motion picture industry? (laughs) And she ended up sitting down with William DeMille, who was No kidding. No kidding. He was an executive at Paramount. And um, I think Cecil B. DeMille was his brother or cousin or something like that. I didn't actually look into that. But Cecil B. DeMille was the filmmaker that was very popular at the time. Um, but William DeMille was an executive. And in 1919, he asked her which department she wanted to work in. Can
0: you imagine today, like, excuse me, can <laughs> yeah. I come speak to one of your top executives? I'm looking for any job. Anything.
1: My friend <laughs> took no me here. I have no experience, but I know I want to do this. I, like, I told my friend I wouldn't come home until I had a job here. So like, can you just give me something? they are like,
0: sure. One second. He's not busy. <laughs>
1: Yes. I mean that's pretty much the way so many of these articles described this meeting was that's kind of how it happened. And he basically was like, All right, so like where do you wanna work? Like what do you wanna do? And she was like, I don't really know. And he said, why don't you just sample some departments and see what you like best? Wow. And she spent the whole week observing the set and seeing who did what and, you know, helping people where it made sense for her to help her. And she was also, one of those sets included, uh, and I don't know which movie it was, but it was a set of Cecil B. DeMille, after which she made the observation, quote, if one was going to be in the movie business, one should be a director, because he was the one who told everyone else what to do. Yeah. And that was very appealing for her. (laughs) Um, So the first thing she did was become a script typist. And... This was good because she learned a lot about the conventions of script writing, like what actually went into putting a narrative together, what directors were looking for um, when it came to like action and how the script should look, et cetera, et cetera. But she didn't stay there long because she was a really bad typist. (laughs) No good. (laughs) She was there for like three months, and they were finally like, "Ah, um, Longer than I thought you were going to say. Yeah, three months. <laughs> if she's a really bad typist, it's just like,
0: oh, this is another one that Dorothy did. Oh, okay.
1: Man, I feel like in this day and age, yeah. it would be two weeks. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Two days. Two days. Like, couldn't hag it. No. Hated it. Got to move on. But back then, three months, probably just the right amount of time for her to be paid like, for eh. it. Yeah, exactly. Um, but she decided she didn't want to do that anymore. And she followed that stint up as an editor in the Paramount Editing Bay in 1922. Ah. Yeah. And she, uh, from there, began editing the dramatic Rudolph Valentino film Blood and Sand, about a peasant who becomes a champion bullfighter. And although she went uncredited, she also shot some of the, like she directed some of the bullfighting scenes for the film and edited that footage, intercutting it with stock footage which was a really shrewd choice because that meant Paramount didn't have to go out and right, shoot all right. these bulls fighting, and she saved Paramount thousands of dollars that way. And so, yeah,
0: they clearly, we're going to be struggling.
1: Yeah, I mean, now that I know that about Mae West, it's it makes sense that they would be watching their dollars and excited about people who can save them money. This is right and after there. World
0: War One. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so in those twenty years, they were like,
1: ah, yep. Um, so her work on Blood and Sand caught the attention of director James Cruz, who would later employ her as a writer and editor for a number of his films. According to Arzner, Cruz told people that she was his right arm. Very it interesting, does tie in. right? Yeah. I told you it would. Um, she eventually wrote the shooting script and edited Cruz's movie Old Ironsides, which was a 1926 film. And she became the first person in film history, man or woman, to receive an on-screen credit as editor. What? The first person to be credited as editor. Was a woman. On a film. Was a woman. Was this woman. And that was for Old Ironsides, which she also wrote the shooting script for. And it blows my mind, too. Sorry. Yeah. Just to to think that
0: everyone knows who Quentin Tarantino is. Mm Mm-hmm. But he considers the success of his films are due in large part to his editor, mm-hmm. and I didn't know her name. I know people in film know her name, film nerds. But, sure, but but still, yeah, it's interesting. I agree. And I mean, it's the same thing, even, I mean, from any perspective. Like Ava DuVernay, who we talked about, has this, the same editor, this the man that she gave that opportunity to. Yep. Kevin, I think his name was or something. And exa- exactly. The thing is, I don't remember. And I <laughs> looked it up and talked about it. Is that
1: the director is the one who gets all the credit and the glory. Yeah. Which is interesting. Yeah. Anyway. It is. It really is. And that's. What was appealing to her, obviously, to Dorothy, but clearly she made herself invaluable, yeah. in every way she possibly could. yeah, I mean, the fact that she ingratiated herself with James Cruz so deeply that he was like, "This person is my right my right arm." Yeah, And she became the first person to receive an on-screen credit as editor. Yes, don't make fun of me. Don't <laughs> laugh at me. And I think that's because James Cruz recognized, like, he could not have made his films without her. And right. she deserved that. Yeah. When editors prior, maybe nobody even thought about that. Right. With them. Yeah. But she made herself so invaluable that they needed to give her that credit. Wow. You know? Yeah. Um. So from there, Dorothy established herself as a screenwriter, providing scripts for such films as The Red Kimono, which was directed by another female trailblazer of the time, Dorothy Davenport. And When Husbands Flirt, an early effort by the great William Wellman, who I did not think to look up, but, you know, apparently he was a great director of his time. One of the greats. One of the greats. Um, And through her work with Cruz, she gained considerable leverage, And because obviously they recognized how important she was. Right. Well, when it's like, I'm the first person to ever receive credit for this job, so obviously I'm amazing. Yeah, like, I'm really important. (laughs) And she threatened to leave Paramount for Columbia Pictures Whoops! if she was not given a picture of her own to direct. (sighs) Mm Mm-hmm. That's so smart. So, so smart. She said, I had an offer to write and direct a film for Columbia. It was then I closed out my salary at Paramount, and I was about to leave for Columbia. Before leaving, Dorothy decided to say goodbye to Walter Wanger, the head of Paramount's New York studio. And when she said she was leaving, he offered Arsner a job in the scenario department, which I'm not entirely sure what that is, and a discussion about directing sometime in the future. Shoot. Yeah, very okay, sure, sure. She replied, Not unless I can be on a set in two weeks in an A picture. Two weeks? Mm-hmm. That's no time. No time. Especially she, back then. Yeah. And she wanted it to be the highest level. But also she didn't give a shit.
0: But I guess that's like the way that the system worked back then. Like actors couldn't say yes or no to a picture. They signed deals. And they were like, you're going to be in this film. Right. And so it was like, I know you're making a film and you don't have a director for it. And I want to be on a set. I don't care what film it is.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Just give me one of your A pictures. She said, I'd rather do a picture for a small company and have my own way than a B picture for Paramount.
0: So, so she asked for like one of the top mm-hmm. the creme de la creme yep. like that they were expecting money. Yep. and recognition for.
1: That or nothing in 2 weeks or I'm leaving for Columbia. For Columbia Pictures. Wanger then offered her a chance to direct a comedy based on the play The Best Dressed Woman in Paris, which would later be retitled Fashions for Women. A 1927 film. Okay. And it would be her first picture. So the novelty-ridden hijinks, Esther, Esther Ralston was the actress. She played both roles, both characters in this film. I, okay. didn't, I didn't type out too much about what it's about. But the, the, the film didn't set the world on fire. It had some hijinks, it had some fun, but it wasn't like... But it, they said it was supposed to be an A film. Yes, it was okay. one of their A pictures. Okay. Um, but it still it gave Dorothy the opportunity to put what she had learned into practice. Right. Um,
0: I still can't how how long was it between when she walked in the door and said, give me
1: a job to this? That's a good question. This film was 1927. She was editing for Cruise in 26. So I don't but think she it went was in
0: right after World War One
1: ended. Was she? Yeah, she so went, it was a few years. Yeah, yeah. OK, the, but still. She, she got her first job in the editing bay in 22 and she had only been a typist before that for 3 months.
0: So oh yeah, so this was like 5 years and yeah. she was a
1: director on an A film. Yes. Wow. Yeah. She'd established herself as an editor, as a she did some of the shooting scripts, she was screenwriting a little bit. And then she was like, "Columbia offered me something. I'm going to go with them unless you can do better." And so Paramount said, "All right, we'll do better." So the film even though Reviewers didn't love it. It was still a commercial success. Oh, okay. And it led Paramount to hire her for three more silent films. I
0: mean, I think that that's all that really matters. Yeah. It's like you know, last week when we were talking about Mae West, her all of her plays, people were like, critics were like, "This sucks. She's degrading the morality of America." And everyone was like, "Oh, really? Let yeah. me go see this."
1: Yeah. <laughs> I would. I would like to know what the play "Sex" this is play about. Called Sex is about. (laughs) So Paramount hired her for more, three more silent films. Sorry about the sirens, guys. I'm just going to power through. And then all of them were commercially successful enough that she was entrusted to direct the studio's first talking picture. Ever? Ever. The Wild Party. What? I don't think it's the same story as...
0: No, it has to be because it's based off of a Runyon poem, which was written in the 20s. Oh. So I think it probably was. Maybe it was. It got turned into two off, uh, off Broadway, then Broadway shows. There were the, the Lippa and the LaCusa LaCusa. There were two shows called the Wild Party that came about in the same time that were based off of a Runyon
1: poem. Oh, that's funny. I think I must Queenie. have, I must have had what the movie was about in my notes and then deleted it. But it it this one starred Clara Bow, mm. the
0: first talking picture starring one of the biggest silent film stars ever. Yes. Although it wasn't Clara Bow, she quickly became when talkies started happening, that's when her star began to fade because of her crazy accent.
1: Her yeah. voice was a little bit like Yes. Oh, oh. Her voice was a little weird. Yeah. It was the speaking debut for Clara Bow, yeah. And she was she was twenty four years old at the time. Only twenty four, but she had starred in over fifty silent films. That's insane. Isn't that insane? I, like I don't even know. Be, but they were so quick and easy to make because you didn't have sound, so yeah. you could just pump them out, you know, one after the other. And they, a lot of them were studio films, yeah. so you were just on a silent st- uh, st- sound stage.
0: Not even a sound. Not even a
1: sound stage. <laughs> what would you call that? Just a studio, and stage. you know, pumping them out. She had an expressive face that the camera loved, which is I think why she was so perfect for silent film. But as you mentioned, her Brooklyn accent and her lack of experience with sound recording affected her confidence. Wow. She was nervous around the microphones. She would glance at them during takes, ruining their shots. And of course, this is on film. So, you know, you only have a finite amount of film to work with. So, this is when
0: she invented the boom, she
1: invented the boom mic because she wanted to give Clara greater flexibility, but also prevent her from staring at all the microphones that were hidden around the set. So if you put it above her, if wow. you put it on a pole, actually I think they had it on fishing wire, uh, or no, she fastened a microphone to a fishing pole and had them hold it above her. Wow! And God, I, I feel like that was <sighs> even heavier back then. It must have been. It must have been. mics are heavy now.
0: Yeah. But nuts you know we have technology to make you know strong metal poles that are light
1: yeah you know what pisses me off about this though what she she was just doing her job so this was just a thing she it it didn't even occur to her to do this but she never filed a patent for this for this device and so a year later some guy named Edmund Hansen decided to file a patent for the boom microphone and is now the official has the official credit for, for inventing, inventing the it boom mic bullshit crazy right Ugh. god damn it that uh, shit i know capitalist technicality i know i know so yeah so she that that really was like a, a big start for her film career she was the first talkie director for paramount um Launched it with Clara Bow, invented the boom mic, and in 1933, she scored big with the film Christopher Strong, which featured Katharine Hepburn in her second film role ever. Jesus. Arzner made a point of personally selecting Hepburn for the starring part of the strong-willed yet self-sacrificing aviator, Lady Cynthia Darrington. Uh,
0: box office poison Katharine Hepburn. Right, like, yeah. As she would later
1: A S. Ma'am. On list. AS ma'am. <gasps> She said um, in an interview in the Cinema Magazine in 1974, I chose to have Katherine Hepburn because I saw her about the studio. She had given a good performance in Bill of Divorcement in 1932, but now she was about to be relegated to a Tarzan-type picture. I walked over to the set. She was up a tree with a leopard skin on. She had a marvelous figure, and talking to her, I felt she was the very modern type I wanted for Christopher Strong. Um, And I think... What movie is it where Kate um, Blanchett plays her and she's playing the aviator? an aviator type? Yeah, and I think it is the aviator. But she's playing that character in in this film. And so she has a very, you know, she's wearing pants. She's got a sort of masculine energy about her. Um, and that was something that she enjoyed. Dorothy had in common. They had this sort of masculine energy that reflected off of each other on set. Which is also funny because you and I have talked about so many aviators. That's true! So for her next picture, The, uh, the Bride Wore Red in 1937, Dorothy teamed up with star Joan Crawford. Who, what the fuck? Yeah, yeah. She played a, a cabaret singer who poses as an aristocrat in a fancy resort. Mm. The less than glowing New York Times review was sprinkled with backhanded compliments. They said, if, if it is anything at all, it is a woman's picture. Oh boy. Smoldering with its heroine's indecision and consumed with talk of love and fashions. Oh my God. Like, all right. Get over yourselves. We still have that problem today. Oh, yes, we do. Yes, we do. Um, while Bride floundered both commercially and critically, it brought Dorothy a lifelong friend in Joan Crawford. Wow. As well as an important new collaborator in screenwriter Tess uh, Schlesinger, who Arsner would partner with for her undeniable magnum opus, Dance Girl Dance, a 1940 film starring Lucille Ball as a body burlesque dancer named Bubbles. <laughs> who competes for stage time and male attention against Maureen O'Hara, portraying the earnest ballerina Judy. Oh, my. And I want to play God. you a little clip of this film, okay? because it's the, the, the monologue is amazing. Um, but in the words of Sophie Mayer, writing for Sight & Sound magazine, the duo spend much of the film tiffing and dancing like a crypto lesbian Fred and Ginger. But a what, mi- what's tiffing? I think just like arguing, they've got the they've got the you know the banter going on. Okay. The, yeah. Like we got into it but what year was this? Uh, forty. Okay, but
0: I'm sorry, there have been lots of lesbian things happening in on Broadway at least for a while. But that that was actually something that I wanted to talk about a little bit in my episode last week because there was a play that was uh lesbianic. Um, that Ooh. was the reason why Mae West wrote the drag. Because she wanted to, sh- to do the male version. Not version, but she wanted to be like, OK, well, this play about lesbians was really popular. And I feel like gay men need to have their sort of, yeah. anyway.
1: She was so, OK. okay. Yeah, <laughs> yes. All right. Um, amid the screwball capering is a scene in which O'Hara's character, furious at being disrespected and belittled by the mostly male audience, stops dancing, walks to the front of the stage, and confronts the hecklers. So, what? Yeah. So, if I can, can I play just this little bit from Dance Girl Dance?
0: Goosebumps. clapping was started by a woman who stood up and clapped at
1: her yes yes I, I think I mean what I love about that particular bit is that that so clearly exemplifies what Dorothy brought to pretty much all of her films like they had kind of an undeniably feminist bent to them that People didn't start recognizing until they started doing film theory and film history in like the 70s. Like so many of my um, uh, sources are like interviews and articles from the 70s, which is really interesting. Um, But people didn't notice it or couldn't quantify it at the time. But it it had, it was in everything she did. And so the one, the film that I saw was Marilee, We Go to Hell, which was about a woman who She's a, she's a young, naive woman who has a lot of money. And she marries a man who is charming, but an alcoholic. And he makes her feel really good when he f- makes her feel good. But he makes her feel really bad when he makes her feel bad. Because he totally forgets to come to things that are important. Like, he, he forgets the ring at their wedding. Like, cool. awful, awful shit. He just doesn't treat her very nicely. And she finally has enough. And he, um, he ends up cheating on her with his old flame, who is a, a stage performer, a, a, you know, an actress. And she's like, all right, well, you, if you can do that, then um, I can have sex with other dudes too. And they have this, like, crazy, bitter, open relationship where they start flaunting their, their conquests their individual conquests Whoa. in front of each other which is not something you could have done post Hays code no at all no so it really rode the line between pre Hays code and post but but this was a D- Dorothy Arzner film and you know it it ends up having an ending where they stick together but there's this baby scare and we're not really sure if it's his, it might it might and probably isn't his baby and like there's all this really, really deep, crazy shit that they cover in this film that well, I, I just like you know That's the same thing that you
0: discussed when you talk about Ida Lupino and mm-hmm. her film. It's like right. there's a message but then it kinda of gets muddied at the end because you have to. You have to. You have to appease The studio. Right.
1: So Dorothy directed her last film, First Comes Courage, until illness, and I don't know what illness, I looked it up, but it's a little, it's a little vague, but illness forced her to abandon the film in 1943. She was in her mid-40s, and she never returned to the Hollywood studio system after that. Interesting. Yeah, she kept direct directing Women's Army Corps, whack training videos during World War II, and she did a series of Pepsi commercials in the 50s at the behest of Joan Crawford. Um, and in 1959, she took up a teaching position at UCLA, where her students included Francis Ford Coppola, who cites her as an influence later on. I, right. I know. I know. I know. Um, she died in 1979. I don't know what from, but she had 16 directing credits to her name. Okay. Obviously, that's just the stuff that we know of. Um, she was the most prolific female director that Hollywood has ever seen. She was still. also still yes, which still. is insane. She was also during her time. I don't know if I mentioned this. Um, the first, she was the first female member of the DGA. Yes, you did mention. Did that. I mention that? Okay. Yes. And and the only one until obviously she left and then Ida came Ida in. joined. Yeah. Um, but an element of Dorothy's legacy. Because I remember when you
0: actually talked about oh. Ida, you were like, "She's the second. I don't know who the first is." Yeah, and I didn't now, know. Now here you
1: go. I didn't know, and and you know, so much of the time when we do when we do these women, we learn about other women who came before, but we don't necessarily have the time to 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 delve research into it them. For the point of, yeah. And so you know, we can do it. After we can do it later on. And here we go. An element of Dorothy's legacy that many historians fail to mention, especially in articles that I found, is this Dorothy was a butch lesbian woman directing films at a time when no other woman was directing movies in Hollywood at all. Do you think she and Alan Azamova knew each other? I'm sure they were in the knitting circle <laughs> Ah! The next sentence in my notes is she managed to have affairs with some of the most tor- most notorious actresses of the day including Alla Nazimova.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Look at me. Yep, yep,
1: yep. And Billy Burke who would later go on to play Glinda the Good Witch. What? Yes, ma'am. Oh my
0: god. Mhm. So many lesbians in Hollywood and we didn't know it. Oh, I know.
1: Or at least bisexual women.
0: Well, yeah. So many queer ladies.
1: Yes. Um, there are rumors that Katherine Hepburn and Joan Coff- Crawford were um, affairs mm-hmm. as well, but nothing was ever confirmed. Mm. Um, the thing is, she was in a loving relationship with dancer and cinematographer Marion Morgan almost the entire time she worked in Hollywood and all the way into the 1970s. So she met Marion on the set of her very first film, Fashions for Women, where Marion was hired as a dance choreographer and after they had worked on a number of films together, they moved in with one another in the 30s. And they remained together for over 40 years. What do they
0: call that? Boston marriage? What did they call it? Were, you, were roommates? Boston roommates or some shit? I have no idea. I've never know. heard
1: that. <laughs> yeah, because it was never confirmed by anyone. But they had lots of parties and house guests who, um, I think, would have confirmed that they were you know, basically married. Boston marriage
0: was historically the cohabitation of two wealthy women independent of financial support from a man.
1: Aww. The term
0: is said to have been in use in New England in the late 19th and early 20th century. Some of these relationships were romantic in nature and might now be considered a lesbian relationship. Others were not. I'm glad I wasn't crazy.
1: Fascinating. No, I had just never heard it. Um, as was the case with so many uh, other technically closeted artists in the industry, Arsner's homosexuality was something of an open secret. And while public discussion of it would have been out of the question, her obvious butch style, tailored suits, slicked back short hair, thick eyebrows, indicated her clear disinterest in traditional ideas of femininity. Yeah. This was interesting. I did a deep dive into this, but I didn't end up including any of it in my notes specifically. But newspapers and journalists had a really hard time with her. like. In what way? They could not figure out how to describe her. They described her as being very stylish, but they didn't want to call her masculine. They didn't want to say... Because they didn't want to say being masculine was stylish? Or what? They didn't want to admit that she was purposefully trying not to appear feminine. Mm. And... Um, She was almost always seen in well-tailored suits, masculine hats, cufflinks, Oxford shoes, pressed uh, button-down shirts, which she ordered in bulk from New York. Um, Despite this obviously masculine sartorial choice, journalists often tried to describe her in ways that denoted some kind of femininity, Despite her lack of it, she was often portrayed in a schoolmarm-esque way in comics and political cartoons. Yeah, I saw her more than which once. Which would not imply stylish. They, yeah, they they would put her in this crazy low bun and a dowdy skirt. Um, you know, she looked kind of like olive oil. In, in so many From Popeye, <laughs> like in a lot of these political cartoons, which is, she didn't have long hair. She didn't they have skirts. Yeah, you know, they out. gave her all of these things as a way to denote that, like, she wasn't trying to be feminine, but they couldn't figure out but how she's to be a like. Woman. Yeah. So they um, didn't know how
0: else to do it.
1: Exactly. Okay. So they just couldn't fathom drawing her in any way that defied, like, a traditionally understood womanhood. Interesting. And a lot of articles that I read about her that came out in the 20s and 30s, the profiles of her were like, She wore a a tailored suit, but she didn't defy her femininity. Or she had sparkling blue eyes. She had small feet and small stature, and she was very (laughs) feminine in form. Right. Even though when they met with her, she was wearing a fucking suit and oxfords and had a slicked back, you know, and a masculine style hair. And like... so, anyway, so she was really a conundrum for people at the time. Yeah. Which I just found so fascinating. Um, but, yeah, she was a butch lesbian in Hollywood and didn't give a fuck about the pretending the to DGA. be feminine. First woman in the DGA. Creating these very feminist and often queer, you know, crypto-lesbian...
0: Crypto-lesbian. <laughs>
1: pictures. Um, so... Uh, only in later years does the feminist and queer lens through which many of her films were made become apparent, um, but it can't be denied that her films were distinctly female centric, and sub- subverted common tropes of the time—the male gaze—and they subtly dismantled the patriarchal directives of the studios hiring her to make these films, while still giving them what they wanted: happy endings, you know, the couples ending up together, etc. Right, right. Um, but yeah, that was Dorothy Arzner. She was a pioneer in more ways than one. Wow! The pioneer you've never heard of, who gave us the boom mic, the uh, the editorial credit on films, and um, g- you know, gave Katherine Hepburn sort of her second big role in Hollywood. What's well, interesting too, when you think about, we we both. In the last couple of weeks,
0: did women in entertainment? But they were s- they were so starkly similar as trailblazers, but so starkly different,
1: right? Dorothy Arzner lived with one woman for forty years, Marion Morgan. In <laughs> May
0: West was all about fucking as many men as she could, even though she was married. For right until the
1: forties, <laughs> she was extremely sensual, extremely sensual. Yeah, and Dorothy was somebody that like. Was was sort of so unsexual in the traditionally traditionally feminine way that people had to give her sexuality and femininity in their portrayals of her. Everyone was like,
0: no, 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 make tone it down, tone it down. Right? She even said, like, when men would come to hang out with me, I'd have to calm them down. (laughs) Like, Jesus
1: Christ, please, (laughs) like, sir, put your boner away. (laughs) And Dorothy's like, I don't want, but only for now. We'll take care of that later. I mean, yeah, it's, it is, it's really, it's so fascinating. And I wonder if they crossed paths. Uh, I'm sure they, they did. To, because she was a big part of Paramount. Right. I the, Yeah, when you, when you were talking about her, it took everything in me to be like, Ooh, like, I can't say anything at all. But, <laughs> but man, I just, it makes me wonder if they sat down and talked at all, or if they ever, you know, met at a party well, or whatever. Well, I wonder whatever. too, because
0: May West was so focused on men. Mm-hmm. And how men perceived her, and she didn't want to hang out with women. She admittedly right. said that it was useless for her to spend time with women.
1: Yeah. Do you want some on this day? Give me some on this day. All right. So it is March 11th today. And more fascinating things. 1789, Yeah. Benjamin Banneker and Pierre Charles L'Enfant, L'enfant. L'enfant begin to lay out Washington, D.C., I was like, what the fuck does that mean? So I had to look them both up because I was curious about what that meant. Oh, are you talking about how
0: Washington, D.C. is designed so that nobody, that an incoming army can't find where the capital is because it's fucking insane to figure out where you're going?
1: I'm talking about how Washington, D.C. is designed by a Frenchman and a free African-American man. Whoa. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That's what I said. I was like, hold up. Hold up. I had never heard of either of these people before. So Pierre was a French architect. And Benjamin Banneker was a mathematician, almanac author, surveyor, farm owner, and astronomer who was born free. And also, he just happened to be, um, yeah, a self-educated, farm-owning African-American man. What? What? and he was hired to survey the land where washington dc would go and help this french architect design the layout of washington dc so it's designed crazy (laughs) trying to find out
0: how where to go thank god we live in the age of gps because (laughs) when i was in
1: dc i was like how the what the but that's, that's all old cities like that. I mean, New Orleans 1918, is 1918, the first confirmed cases of the Spanish flu in the U.S. are reported at Fort Riley, Kansas. 1959, Raisin in the Sun, the first Broadway play by a black woman, opens. Lorraine Hansberry. 1959. Lorraine 1968, play. Otis Redding is the first person in the U.S. to posthumously receive the gold record for his single *Sittin' on the Dock of the Bay.
0: I didn't know Otis Redding died that early. I
1: didn't either. I love him. Yep. Um, This one I kind of thought was just a little funny. 1971, Jim Morrison leaves for Paris to reorient himself emotionally and creatively and to avoid the jail sentence given to him in Miami.
0: I was wondering why. I was like, well, that's a valid reason to go. And then I was like, oh.
1: No, he's avoiding (laughs) jail. You you buried the lead on that one. Yeah, yeah. He's avoiding jail for public drunkenness or some shit. Uh, and he never comes back to the U.S. Wow. Isn't that funny? There. there you go. Um, 1997, Gene Roddenberry, who created Star Trek, his ashes are launched into space. That's cool. Isn't that cool? I thought that was cool. I figured I'd, I'd keep that in there because I like space things. You do. Uh, 2006, Michelle Bachel- Bachelet? Bachelet? Is inaugurated as the first female president in Chile cool. I probably should have looked that up uh, oh 2018 <laughs> I know podcast. probably should have looked that up 2018 China's National People's Congress approves the removal of term limits Yee! that will allow president uh, Xi Jinping presidency for life. Cool, fun, We're fun, back fun to monarchy and yeah. democracy. That's fun. So much fun. President Winnie the Pooh. Um, President Winnie the Pooh. Last one, just because it's a little bit more positive. Thank you. 2018, the superhero movie Black Panther becomes the fifth Marvel film to earn one billion dollars worldwide. I worked on that. Are you allowed to say that?
0: I am now. Yay! I'm credited. It's on my IMDb. Oh, shit.
1: And that's that. That's on this day in history. Let me take credit for Ryan Coogler's work.
0: Do it. (laughs) The youngest director in Marvel cinematic history. Do it. (laughs) And Ava DuVernay was, remember, she was offered that that role. She was offered to direct it, but she was like,
1: nah. I get it. Yeah. I totally get it being directors.
0: We've done a lot of directors recently.
1: I know. That's awesome.
0: What are you excited about? Uh, Let me tell you and this is uh, 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 old news probably by this point but I saw Invisible Man. You did? I did. Wow. I saw it on Thursday.
1: Okay. Which
0: by the time this is dropping. It was a long time ago. But But I want to
1: know about this. It
0: was very good. Wow. It was really great. Isn't
1: it kind of like about Gaslighting women?
0: Yes.
1: (laughs) Okay. All
0: right. It sure is. All right. And uh, I think it was really wonderfully made. Obviously, Elizabeth Moss is a fantastic actor and um, can bring a lot of clout to anything. Mm -hmm. Um,
1: Despite her Scientology Despite her
0: Scientology. um, She's still a great actor. Mm -hmm. Um, But... It's, yeah, it's about a woman who wants to leave her abusive husband. And then he commits the ultimate act of abuse, which is literally convincing everyone he doesn't exist anymore. And she knows he does. And no one believes her. And he
1: continues to abuse her yes. throughout.
0: He's obs- And she like Ugh. has this monologue in it where she's talking to no one because she knows he's there. She's not even 100% sure yet, but she knows he's there. Oh and she's like, why me? Because he's super rich, super smart. And she's like, you could literally have any woman you wanted. And I want to leave. Why me? Why are you continuing to follow me and chase me and be obsessed with me? And it's just, it's beautiful. And she's she's just fucking great in it. And I think it's really well directed. Um, shit. and has kind of a dark ending. I'm sure. You'll have to see it and let me know what you think. Is it really scary or is it more of a there's thriller? There's a lot of jump scares in it for okay. sure, but it's not horror. It's more suspense. Okay. Like I had a lot of moments where I was, there's one moment in particular I'm thinking of. She and caught I, air. Where I was, I was like, oh my God, where I was just like, holy shit. And but it, it was really good, and I highly recommend seeing it. All right. And, um, the New I York Times gave it a great it review, out. too, which I was like, thank God, oh, oh, that's amazing to me. And I think it's oh. one of the first reboots of the Universal Dark Universe that's uh, worth seeing. Because um, obviously, the mummy sucked. Oh. The, the Tom Cruise one. I never saw it because it sucked. um Me neither, yeah. It's interesting how they changed this one because I Think and correct me if I'm wrong. The original, the original is about uh, chemistry, and he finds some sort of potion, Mm. like that he makes that he takes that makes him invisible. Right. And then that makes him go a little crazy and make makes him murderous. Whereas this one, he's already like that, and he figures out a way to become invisible. That is, he's he doesn't need that to make him
1: scary. Scary.
0: He was already scary. Right. Anyway, anyway, it was great.
1: I am not surprised, but also I feel like, all right. Now I, about now it. I maybe need to see it because I've and been Storm a little Reed embuckling. is in
0: it. Storm Reed is everywhere. Wait, who is that? She was the lead in Wrinkle in Time. Oh, baby, I loved her. Yeah. Okay. All right. And she was in When They See Us, so clearly Ava loves her. Ah. Uh, yeah.
1: That's awesome. Go see it. I want to go see that. Yeah. And uh, why don't we go do that? Go watch some movies. And uh, you see guys. See you next week. We'll see you next week. Peace out, witches. Bye. Thank you for listening to Good Witches, Bad Bitches. Thank you so much for listening. We really appreciate it. Good Witches, Bad Bitches is hosted by Deanna Greif. Me. You. And you. <laughs> Hannah Ferguson.
0: And we're produced by
1: Benjamin Garst. Um, you can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play. Google Play. Pretty and much more.
0: anywhere you listen to your podcasts, you can find us there. We're also on social media. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook, GWBB Podcast. You can also email us at GWBBpodcast at gmail.com. We love to receive emails. If you have a story about a woman in your life that you want to hear on air, uh, shoot it over to us. We would love to read it.
1: If you want to help keep us running, you can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash (laughs) podcast. Become a patron and help us you know pay for our hosting yeah
0: patreon really helps content creators be able to continue to create their content and it just kind of helps us break even on the costs of producing this podcast and it would be really awesome
1: if you wanted to help out if you like it you can be a part of it also to help us out you can rate review and subscribe all the all of those things are extremely helpful for us they help other listeners find us yeah word of mouth also good yeah
0: (laughs) our website is gwbbpodcast.com you can find all of our episodes there as well as some other things bubbling out of our witchy cauldron good witches
1: bad bitches is powered by Moon moon bounce